Good morning, Specker Road Campus. How are we doing? Great. I uh, hope you're enjoying this beautiful spring weekend, uh, whatever. If you're new here, my name is Ryan. I'm on the teaching team. Uh, during the week, you can find me up at DeForest, uh, serving as a campus pastor there. Go Norskis. Just going to say it. It's awesome. Uh, so thanks for joining us. We are continuing uh, this teaching series that we're calling Money Matters because who doesn't love to talk about money? Uh, yeah, especially pastors. Uh, so here's the crazy thing. Uh, when we talk about money, it brings up all sorts of defensiveness, anxiety, fear, uh, like uh, passive aggressiveness. You know, a lot of us have no idea how much money we actually have or how much debt we actually have. We just don't want to know. Uh, but when we come to the pages of scripture, what we find is that the operating uh, principle, the operating word in scripture when it comes to dealing with our wealth is this word generosity. Because when we come to God with all of that burden that comes uh, around the area of finances, what we find is that God is an infinitely generous God who has built uh, abundance into his creation. And he invites us to overthrow the scarcity mindset that settles in our own hearts and sets us against him and against one another uh, in competition. That's, that's what he does. He invites us into a whole new way of thinking about our wealth and our possessions, and it's all around this area of generosity. But when it comes to generosity, there's always a risk and there's always a reward. So I wanna tell you a little story. Any Airbnb users here? So it's this thing, it's kind of like hotels, but you can like rent people's rooms or cabins or whatever, all, all in, in the internet. So when it started back in 2007, uh, Brian Chemsky and Joe Gebbia, they were living in New York and they moved to San Francisco to start something. They had no idea what, they were like entrepreneurs in heart, but not in reality yet. I don't know if you can relate. And uh, so they had these great ideas, but rent was crazy expensive, something like $3,500 a month for their little two bedroom apartment. And so they were just broke, right? And so uh, they, they were thinking we might have to move out if something doesn't change soon. So a conference came into town, booked all of the hotels in San Francisco, and they saw an opportunity. They're like, we have space on our floor. So they went to Target and bought some air mattresses, three of them, uh, and they built a website overnight because they're coders and they can do that. And they said, okay, we will let anyone stay in our place. We'll give you uh, a, an air bed and space on our floor and Pop-Tarts or whatever the breakfast was uh, for 80 bucks, right? Insanely, like surprisingly, three people signed up and the first Airbnb customers came into existence. Uh, they're like, maybe there's something to this idea. So another conference came into town and they tried it again, no go. Everyone online was commenting like stranger danger much, you know, there's a sort of weird idea. Uh, so they gave it one last ditch effort in 2008 in Denver because lo and behold, uh, the Democratic National Convention came into town. Tens of thousands of people were coming and they're like, this is our chance to make it or just to give up, right? And so they, they did this Hail Mary effort. Uh, they were already thousands of dollars in debt, uh, but they, they, had, they could called in all their favors except for one. They had a friend who was the designer and they said, hey, can you design cereal boxes for us? That's right, cereal boxes. Uh, and here's what they look like. Obama O's and Captain McCain's. Does anyone hear about this? 
So what they did, this is brilliant and, and like stupid at the same time. They emailed all these bloggers and like news outlets and they said, okay, uh, get, help us get the word out. We're selling these commemorative cereal boxes, uh, which by the way, they went to the grocery store and bought cereal off the shelf and dumped it into their boxes. <laughs> We're selling these for 40 bucks a pop. Good idea or bad idea? They made 30 grand, 30 grand. Uh, and, and more than that, they got the word out about Airbnb, and that weekend, 600 people used their services, and Airbnb started to take off. Today, they are a $25 billion company. What in the world, right? Like, only in America can this kind of craziness happen. So whether... Whether we're talking about lemonade stands or Silicon Valley startups or starting a Bible study or planting a church, uh, there's no such thing as a reward without a risk. And usually the bigger the reward, the higher the risk. So uh, before Bree and I moved here, my wife and I and our three kids, we were living in Reno, Nevada. We were settled there and we loved it. Things were going great, you know. Uh, but we heard about this church, Door Creek Church, that was planting uh, a campus or like about to build a new building. The campus had already existed, but build a new building into forest. And we were like, we were hooked. We, we were curious. And so uh, we were, our family lives in the area, so we visited for Christmas, and we did like a little covert uh, drive through DeForest just to check it out. And we drove down Peterson Crossing Boulevard, which at the time was just a big field, and there was this hill. We knew that's where the campus was going to be built. And what God did in us is he caused us to see potential that we could not unsee anymore. So we said, we know it's risky well, we've got, to, we've got to get on the ground floor of what God is doing here. And there's something about that moment when your sense of purpose is so strong that you can't unsee what's right in front of you. There's something about this entrepreneurial kind of ambition that is really, really godly, you know? Something, about, something in that is, uh, describes the way God sees the world, and that his kingdom uh, is a generosity project, and he's looking for partners to get in with him on the ground floor so that they can amplify his goodness and his justice out into the world and the effects of which goes on for eternity. But like any great reward, there always comes risk, and risk is hard. Risk is scary. And so Jesus, gives us this business parable in Matthew 25 to show us kind of the, the mindset of generosity that he's looking for. And what we see, as we're, what we're gonna see is that the mindset of generosity understands the risk and rewards. But what we're gonna find, what Jesus wants to show us is the risk isn't actually that risky and the reward is about way more than just money. And he's looking for us to partner with him in his generosity project. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up or turn it on to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, we're gonna jump in at verse 14. If you're new to the Bible, go ahead and use the table of contents that's at the beginning. We're not gonna have the words up here because we wanna dig in and actually consume this, this uh, important book for ourselves. So Matthew 25, 14. Again, this is Jesus talking. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So 
this, this wealthy kind of business owner going on a journey. This is like a common uh, motif that Jesus uses to show us what the kingdom of God is going to be like for us because he's done his, his earthly work and then he's going to leave to be with the Father and give his followers the Holy Spirit and his expectation is that uh, his, his followers are gonna continue the movement. They're gonna continue the work. It's like when a business owner leaves town and says, here, here's my stuff, you keep doing what I would do, right? So this, this master entrusting his money, it's not a gift, it's not like a loan, uh, it is entrusted to them, and there's something about the way God entrusts things to us, he fully expects us to participate in what he's doing. Because one day, as we're gonna read later, he's going to come back and he's gonna ask every one of us, what did you do with the time and the resources I entrusted to you? And this is the first thing that we learn about the generosity mindset, is that the risk isn't actually that risky. Why? Because, drum roll please, it's God's capital, not ours. It's God's capital, not ours. So there's this, um, this verse uh, opening up uh, Psalm chapter 24 that really captures this well. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You know how when you would go to summer camp, your mom would write your name on your shirt tag and your backpack and your water bottle? Uh, it, well, that's, that's kind of what God does over all of his creation. He says, it's, it's mine. Uh, Abraham Kuyper uh, puts it really well. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. When you and I cry, mine, we usually we're doing that out of jealousy or greed or selfishness. But when God says mine, all he's doing is saying, I made it. I have like authority because I am the author of all of creation. He has author's rights. And so what we find here is that this this parable, we're gonna be talking about money, but this parable is about way more than just money. That what God has entrusted to us is not just our money, though that's included in it, but it's also your time, it's our stuff, it's our skills, it's our energy, our attitudes, our health, our sexuality, our habits, our relationships, our work, all of it, Jesus says, belongs to him, right? Belongs to him. And the fact that he entrusts all of that to us to carry out his work tells us that God doesn't see his creation as a fixed, limited resource. And part of the generosity mindset is that we begin to see God's creation as he sees it is in that it's capital. It's capital he calls us to invest, not to, to make our lives more comfortable or for our own accolades, but it's so that we can create waves of goodness that echo on into eternity. We're to reflect God's generosity, but he bankrolls us. You know? He's like the ultimate uh, venture capitalist, he, and he loves funding our generosity startups. But... With the scarcity mindset, most of us like to keep a controlling interest over our stuff, and especially our money. And there's so much anxiety that, that comes out of that. There's so much fear that comes out of that. I mean, fear about money comes from the thought, the belief that it's mine to lose, 
right? Or if I give it away, I won't have enough. And that's, that's a total affront to the way God views our resources. So we, we're seeing here that the risk isn't actually that risky because it's God's capital, not ours, but there's something else. Let's look in verse 15. You guys are like, oh my gosh, all of that and we're only, we did one verse, like speed it up, Morrison. Here we go, verse 15. So he's entrusted as well to his servants. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So some of your translations might have this word talent, which is a Greek word. Uh, and, and so I love the way the NIV puts this in, in, in calling it bags of gold. Because what talent basically means in Greek is that it's, it's too much money to count, so you just weigh it. Right? I can't relate to having that problem. I'm pretty sure that's what Kanye does when he goes shopping. He just grabs a bag of gold and he's just like, here you go. Uh, keep the change. So it's kind of like us talking about you know, 30K or like a grand. Like you never would see that on a printed bill, but you just know it's a ton of money. So did you notice that he gives different amounts to the different servants? It seems kind of unfair, right? Like what's up with that? Well, it tells us, uh, and this is super, super key in verse 15, that the bags of gold were given to his stewards in differing amounts based on what? Their abilities, their abilities, that's right. So, I don't know, I've heard this preached uh, before, well-intentioned, I'm sure, but in kind of like God gives everyone a special talent or like a special skill, you're supposed to use it for Jesus, right? So if you make balloon animals, like make balloon animals for Jesus, you know? If you juggle, juggle for Jesus, right? If you make bake cupcakes, like get on the British baking show and bake cupcakes for Jesus. And while I am totally for that idea, that's not what this text is talking about. What it's saying is that these bags of gold, this wealth that's entrusted, they're not natural abilities, but the master gives them, invests them, entrusts them to his stewards based off their natural abilities. Here's what this means. Apparently, God takes your natural abilities and your capacities into account when he entrusts his wealth to you. It carries huge implications. It means that the, the wealth that God entrusts to us, uh, or, or sorry, the generosity mindset isn't really risky because it's God's capital, not ours. And secondly, because we're not responsible for what we have, but what we do with what we have. Does that make sense? You see the difference? Like everyone has some level of ability, some level of capacity, and we're all different from each other. Even the term disabled uh, is really, really misleading because even a disabled person uh, has some level of ability that God has called them to steward in their body and in their mind and the way they relate to people. Like my son has cerebral palsy and uh, when we uh, go to the, the handicapped parking spaces in school, which by the way, he always gives us the best parking spaces and we're like, thanks, Sai, for the parking space. He's like, sure, no problem. Anyway, so we park right next to the door and he like tools out in his walker and he goes into school. But right next to us is sweet little Annika who is living her life out in a wheelchair and the ramp is lowered and she's brought down and someone comes out and pushes her in. Like both Silas and Annika are, are called by God to steward the abilities that they have, but their levels are very, very different. Does that make sense? 
Every one of us. We have a background story. Uh, We're connected to a history in our families. We were raised a certain way. We come from, some of us, really great parents. Some of us, not so great. You know, some of us have pristine gene pools. Others of us are like, it's more like a gene swamp, you know, something like that. (laughs) And, And God takes all of that stuff that's out of our control into account when he measures out how much wealth he entrusts to each individual. And when... What this means is God knows you intimately. It means your strengths and your weaknesses matter to God. And ultimately, it means he's never gonna ask us to do anything that we can't do. He's interested in partnering with you and I as we are right now more than he's, he's interested in waiting for us to become perfect people. That's really good news. And so this, this entrusting looks very different for different people. So there are five baggers here. Uh, you don't need to raise your hand, but five baggers, you know, you're full of vision, you're, like, you're, you're entrepreneurial, uh, you only need like four hours of sleep a night and we can't stand you, you know, because of that. You've got the ability, you know, to write like five digit checks to hospitals and churches, like f- for, for vacation, for a one or two bagger like me and my wife, my family, like if we're lucky, we'll get a night at the Kalahari, but five baggers, uh, they, they like take a whole crew to Africa and they spend their vacation digging wells that give villages entire like entire villages access to clean drinking water right like they're, they're differing uh, abilities one and two baggers like me you know we we have some abilities you know like I can talk you know you give me five minutes uh, I'll turn that into 50 you know um, <laughs> you're glad you came here because now you won't be missing the game maybe uh, and but but you know I, I really kind of suck at some other stuff. Like I'm really bad with dates, with dates. Yeah, like if you were at the DeForest campus, and maybe some of you have been there, you've probably watched me uh, say like, yeah, this thing that we're doing is gonna be November 12th, and everyone's like, no, it's not, you idiot, because they can all fact check me because of the giant screen behind me. It's November 8th or whatever. I'm like, you know what? Just, just read the screen and come to the thing and, and whatever, you know, I, we have weaknesses. So one and two baggers, what do we do? Because we're not, we're not five bag people, what do we do? And so maybe for you, if you haven't done this yet, is try the ancient practice of tithing. Tithing is uh, a way to funnel 10% of our wealth into uh, a kind of Christ-centered community that's gonna use it to multiply gospel ministry to serve the underprivileged and vulnerable, to provide health and, and healing and support for people struggling with addictions and, and grief. It's gonna be part of God's move to bring the gospel to people who have never heard the good news of Jesus all around the world. I mean, that's, that's one thing that we can do that has huge, huge impact. And researchers have done the math. Uh, I didn't make this up, uh, but for, in Relevant Magazine, you can Google it if you want. If every Christian funneled 10% of their income through a church that was on mission, we could eliminate global hunger, poverty, illiteracy, and give every human being on the planet access to clean water with hundreds of millions to spare. So we're not responsible for what we have, but what we do with what we have. And this is really important because it means we don't have to compare ourselves to one another. 
We don't have to fall into this comparison trap. Like two-bag people should never, ever uh, be down on themselves because they're not five-bag people. And it means that five-baggers should never disdain a one-bagger because they don't measure up. It means that we need each other to faithfully produce at the level God's called us to do, more or less. And, and what's really funny is when you see a one-bagger who marries a five-bagger, and then they go shopping for the first time, and the one-bagger beelines to like, the clearance rack, and the five-bagger's like, I didn't even know this existed. Right? They've never even seen a sales rack before. So the risk isn't really risky because it's God's capital, not ours. And we're not responsible for what we have, but what we do with what we have. So what did these servants do with what they had? And let's, let's catch up in verse uh, 16. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. So what happened is they put their money to work, right? Uh, they invested, they traded, they bought a bunch of yarn and sold crocheted potholders to hipsters on Etsy. They started businesses, you know, they put themselves through night school and hired a job coach to help them tune up their resumes. They increased their own value. But what happened to the guy with the one bag of gold? Uh, verse 18, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Wait, what? Jesus is brilliant. I don't know if you've noticed this when you read like his stories and parables. He sets up a pattern and then he kicks our feet out from under us. Does Jesus have your attention? What's going on here? What's going on? There's something about the one bad guy that causes him to squander the opportunity he has. He was too afraid to take this risk and he didn't grasp the reward that was at stake. So in Jesus' day, when people dug a hole in the ground and hid uh, money in it, it's because they were afraid of losing it, usually because of robbers. So there's some fear here. And I don't know. I don't know what he was feeling, you know? He's kind of a flat, one-dimensional character in the story, but maybe it was this fear of not having enough. Maybe it was this fear of failing like I'd rather not take any chances losing what I have. Maybe it was a fear of not measuring up to the five and the two bag guys. Whatever it was, he decided to opt out of his master's mission. And a lot of us are risk averse, just like this when it comes to participating in God's generosity project. We can be afraid, like if I pay it forward, there's not gonna be enough for me and my people. If I do this and mess up, you know, what happens then? Or my con contribution is so small, it doesn't matter. So it's, I'm just gonna opt out and just kind of ride on the coattails of these other people who can give a lot more. And our faith becomes boring and predictable and small when we do that. But Jesus wants us to know that there will be an accounting for what we have done with the master's wealth. Check this out in verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So whatever uh, like productivity was expected out of these guys, they were given 
a long time to make it happen. So you get the sense that this wasn't like weeks or months, this was like years or maybe even a lifetime. So whatever they were gonna do with the master's money, they've done it already, right? And, and that's you and I, we're given a long time to, be, to become and grow into faithful stewards of God's wealth. But here's a really important question. Why would we do anything at all? Like, why would we invest our master's wealth into what really matters at all? And it, it's the chance of a greater reward. You know, it's okay to be motivated by a reward. <laughs> That's actually the point of this parable. We're not being asked to take a risk without a payoff uh, at the end. So what was it about the reward that the five and the two bag servants understood that the one bag servant didn't? And so what we find is that uh, the reward is about way more than money. Check it out in verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. More on that in just a minute. Then the man with two bags of gold came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied in the exact same words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. You've uh, with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many, many more things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So what's the, what's the reward here? It's that we become partners in God's generosity project. Like that is the reward. God invites us into the ground floor of his generosity startup, his kingdom. I mean, what was the master so happy about? Was, was he ecstatic about the profits? Like, well done, you made me tons of money. No, he didn't say that. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And did you notice he didn't say to the two bag guy, like, hold on, you saw what this five bag guy brought in, right? No. He said, well done, you have been faithful. And this is what God celebrates. It's our faithful productivity. It's participation with him in what he cares about. He loves to witness our small investments, small hidden secret acts of obedience and faithfulness and love over the course of a lifetime. Because what God sees is at the end of the story, those things were never about the time and money that we think they're about. They were actually about loving what God loves, joining him in his kingdom and in his generosity project. And what looks small here now will actually be amplified again and again and again for all of eternity. It's like, it's like compound interest, except it, it doesn't end, it just goes on forever. So uh, you're gonna hate me for telling you this, but do you know how much uh, Apple shares costed in, costed, cost in 1980? You probably don't. Uh, something like 220 bucks would have bought you like 22 shares. 
So basically, the, the cost of a mid-range like iPod, if you had invested that into Apple in 1980, do you know how much money you have now? Don't hate me. $112,000, right? That's the same kind of principle in the kingdom. The reward is, is participation with God. But in the same way that generosity and love and small acts of obedience are amplified throughout eternity, so is unfaithfulness. So we see here that we can become partners with, in God's generosity project or we can opt out for all of eternity. And you see this play out in verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not gathered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. What did this guy believe about his master? So that you're a hard man. You know what that is? You've probably worked for someone like this before. Someone who is like fiercely competitive. They care more about the bottom line than about you, you know? They're not, they're, they don't listen to your excuses, you know? He said, uh, the, the guy said to his master, you harvest where you haven't sown. So in other words, you're, you're into exploiting people for profit. I mean, does that resonate at all with the picture of the master that we have in this story. It doesn't. I mean, what, what does this master do? Let's think about it. He entrusts his personal wealth to his servants. He gives them complete autonomy. He knows them intimately, right? He, and he expects them only to do what they actually have the ability to do. And then when he comes back and they've done it, he affirms them and celebrates them. And as we'll, we'd see later, he actually lets them keep the profits, I mean, could you imagine working for someone like that? You know? Does this sound like a hard man? No, no, it doesn't. And the master doesn't buy the servant's excuse for a second. He actually calls him out on his bluff. Look in verse 26. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gather where I have not gathered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Like the master sees through this guy's ruse straight to the heart. It's a heart that sometimes uh, most of us uh, also share. And that in, in our heart of hearts, there is someone who wants to snub the master and believe the worst about him, even if it means self-sabotage. So you've probably experienced this in real life. You know, when you were a kid and your mom came in and said, your bed's messy, what's up with that? And you know, on a good day, you'd be like, okay, sorry, I'll, I'll fix it. But on a bad day, you might be like, well, you know, uh, I, I was gonna make it, but then I thought you probably would be mad at me for not doing it right, so I just didn't do it, right? Self-sabotage, and that's what the servant is doing. And that's what we can do as well. I mean, like apparently, the master said, you could have at least put it in the bank, right? I would have accepted that. Like, do something with what I've given you. And like, apparently, the master's okay with trying and failing. But at its heart, 
the wicked laziness of the servant was about his refusal to take a risk. Why? Because he couldn't come to grips with the lavish generosity of his master. So he opted out. And the master let him do that. And in the end, this, like the master gave the servant what he wanted, which was to be totally uninvolved with him, to not have any part uh, in, his, in his, his project. We see this in verse 30. The master said, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wicked servant had had the money for a long time, long enough to prove he was never gonna do anything with it. So we'll, we'd see later the master gave that to the guy who had 10 bags of gold and he gave the lazy servant what he wanted. C.S. Lewis has a really good, helpful quote about this. I'm just gonna read it. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly derives joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is opened. We see the moral of the story in verse 29. We have the words right here. Jesus sums up this story. He says, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So has here is about whoever has been faithful with what they've been given will be given more. There's an amplifying effect throughout all of eternity. So we can partner with God or we can opt out. And the choices that may seem small now, may seem scary now, will actually be amplified and echoed for all of eternity. So there's this really helpful picture from Randy Elkhorn, who's a Christian author. It's, it's the dot and the line. So it kind of works like this. Uh, our 50, 60, 70, 90 years plus whatever of life uh, feels like an eternity, but in the scope of eternity is actually like this little dot. And so the choices we make now with what God has entrusted to us, we can choose to either use for our own security and comfort and accolades or we can choose to invest them and use them for the line. So the, the question is, are you living for the dot or the line? So we wanna step into the mindset of generosity and it just starts, guys, with beholding our generous God who loves to lavish on us. I mean, do you know what you have from God? Have you stopped to think about it? If you woke up today breathing oxygen, you have something to be grateful for, to God. He's given so many good things to us and ultimately, Jesus' death on the cross was the end all expression of God's generosity that he gave us his very life. That when he died on a cross, his death is a window through which we can see the power of God's gift-giving nature. It's enough to cover our scarcity mindset. It's enough to forgive us of our sin and lift us out 
from that muck and mire into a whole new way of viewing the world. And then he invites us to get on the ground floor with him. Second Corinthians uh, chapter eight, verse nine. So this is Paul the apostle writing, by the way, to a really, really impoverished church in the first century. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's where it starts. With embracing what God has given us. That in Christ we've been given a zero down loan with no interest that we'll never have to pay back. We pay it forward. And Jesus is watching and he's waiting and he cannot wait to see what we do with what we've been entrusted to partner with him in his generosity project. So I'm just gonna close with this little kind of image. It starts with the heart. I made this, so if you're a designer and you hate it, that's why. Um, It starts with the heart. We talked about that. When our hearts are are given to God's generosity, it it causes us to look at how am I growing in my own affections and love for God? How am I being other-centered with my own energy and attitudes and and time? And that kind of expands into our home. So some of us have families at home, some of us uh, are married at home, some of us are single or living in dorms, but what, what begins to happen is our homes become places where we help create an umbrella of flourishing for those who are, who are in our care. And that flows out into the community. And hopefully, um, our generosity, uh, we start to funnel that through uh, communities and neighborhoods and organizations, churches who are gonna have an amplifying effect through investing our time, resources, and our skills. And then it goes out to the world where people who are not uh, aware of God's gift-giving nature can hear the gospel and respond and join in. You know, with a scarcity mindset, one bag is defeat. With a generosity mindset, one bag is a start. It's okay to start small. It's okay to start small. And a lot of us need to start small. Uh, We, uh, throughout the rest of the series, we're gonna be making these great, helpful little online tools uh, on our website. If you go to the sermon series page and then click on resources, you can find some teachings about how to get out of debt, uh, make a budget, like you need a budget if you don't have one, you know? Uh, Some of you are like, I need money before I need a budget. Well, start, start with a budget. Uh, so you can start to build these habits and practices uh, into your life. Uh, let's pray. Father, you're so good to us and we're so grateful for what you've given us. And Lord, some of us, um, you know, we've been participating in this for a long time and some of us just need an attitude check. You tell us that you love a cheerful giver. Uh, you, you didn't invite us into uh, utility and duty. You would invite us into, you, to share your happiness. So 
If that's just us and we're running dry, we're going through the motions, help us to regain the joy of generosity. Lord, for those of us who have never ever done this before and uh, we've been wrestling on the fence, dealing with fear, anxiety, or maybe like resistance and anger to like how can they be talking about money? Um, God, I pray you would help us to, uh, uh, to embrace the reality of your generosity so we can start to reflect it in our own lives. Thanks, Father. We love you. It's in Jesus' power um, and his glory that we pray these things. Amen.